everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. We are so excited to be here today to bring you this episode on Ellis Peters' A Morbid Taste for Bones. And after two brief Sherlock Selects episodes, where myself and Josh introduced a couple of our favorite Sherlock Holmes stories, and we'll continue to do that throughout the summer months, we are here finally to reveal our thoughts on this very interesting story. And Josh, how are you doing, pal? It's good to see you. Good to have you here on board. Not bad, Scott. Thanks for asking. Good. good. Uh, nothing too exciting. Just, again, <laughs> settling into the new place yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. working on getting my second uh, vaccine dose mm-hmm. uh, very soon. So, Because I would yeah. like to do some visiting some friends maybe in Toronto in the next couple of weeks or so. So nice we'll, I'll see if I can get that see if I can get that done because apparently they've lowered the amount of time you need now between the first and last dose in Ontario. So oh, good. Especially good. especially the Pfizer dose, which is the one that that, that I had. So mm-hmm. that's what's on, on my plate going forward. On my plate today is a certain medieval monk by the name of Cadfell. The first Cadfell story is what we've got for listeners today and for each other because right. we've been quite quite uh, quiet about our thoughts, haven't we, behind the scenes. We haven't really shared with one another what we think of this story or indeed its context, its interesting history, any of this stuff. Yeah, there's been some vague kind of like just, you know, mm. prefaces on how we feel about it overall and, mm-hmm. and you know, just on, on the progress of our reading it and uh, completing the story. But I never really discerned any, you know, um, prejudices, good or bad, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what you were of, of, of what you thought of the book and and you probably haven't really heard much from me either beyond you know me looking into the historical backgrounds of things as I tend yeah. to do so mm-hmm. and I, I would just say that you know as a preface to listeners that Josh uh, he's, he's a history buff you guys know that you've been listening to the show long enough we both do deep dives into the context of the stories Josh is particularly keen on medieval and ancient history um, and you know the Arthurian the Plantagenets all of that sort of British history and uh Although I know that you'd be quite fascinated by this time, I'm not so sure what you might think of the story. So this will be really interesting for us, I think, too, as a duo to listen to each other bash this one out. But yes, ladies and gentlemen, everybody, thank you for joining us along the ride of A Morbid Taste for Bones, A Medieval Whodunit by Ellis Peters. Our structure for the episode today. Let's just recap, Josh, before we move any further uh, with this episode on the stories that we've already done this season. We have had two short Sherlock Select episodes, which have been really fun to reintroduce some of our favorite Sherlock Holmes episodes. But we've looked in more detail at Stephen King's Later, just a wee while ago. And before that, which started off our third season, we looked at The Silver Pigs by Lindsay Davis. And today we're moving in a different direction. Yeah, it's also kind of a bit similar, though, too, because we're after doing the Stephen King mystery, uh, we're going back to the historical fiction mystery, uh, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is what sort of what Ellis Peters, uh, the author of uh, A Morbid Taste for Bones, uh, sort of began in, in their own way. So even before Lindsay Davis wrote Didius Falco, Cadfell already existed with a few novels already up to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sort of the basis of basically taking the detective narrative and the tropes involved and placing it into a certain historical context. So so with with Didius Falco and uh, Lindsay Davis's first book were you know we were in post-Julio Claudian Rome um uh, kind of like towards the height of the em- of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Now we're into the uh 12th century BC uh in in the Welsh marches, uh, just on the border, you know, and then also into Wales itself. So it's a, 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 during a very uh, 
politico-religious, conflicted time, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Um, right, for sure. As many centuries of the medieval ages were. Yeah. So, and yeah, part, a different setting. And part of that context, Josh, is, of course, the Crusades. And uh, I think it would be wonderful, maybe as a start to today's episode, to this episode here, that you share some information on the Crusades. So why don't we just um, put on our chain mail and so your cross to your gambeson, you know, uh, get your chainmail on as you <laughs> gallop, said. Gallop uh, on over. Deus bolt and uh, march on to the Holy Land and kill every infidel on the way. <laughs> Take it away, buddy. Because that's what happened. So generally speaking, the Crusades was uh, a, a joint European effort, uh, ecclesiastical as well as secular, to uh, free the Holy Land from the infidel Muslim Seljuk Turks and the other uh, Muslim powers in that area to liberate Jerusalem and the Holy Land from those infidels. That's what the Crusades were all about. Now, that's a very straightforward you know, generic explanation, but it's much more complex than that. Sure. Um, the whole, it's not just like, you know, a bunch of Christians, you know, like, put, you know, putting on, on their crosses and marching out to go kill all the infidels. I mean, that was definitely involved, but there's also a lot of political ambition involved as well between, you know, the people that propelled the Crusades. And uh, we also cannot deny the complexity of these Islamic states that lived in the Holy Land at the time and how dynamic and, mm -hmm. uh, civilized and uh like th there's a lot of othering there's a lot of good versus evil in the crusades over history over time and in the past you know 50 years or more uh we're starting to see you know a much more gray um mm. investigation of this time period which is really good uh compared yeah. to you know what it was before which was basically like a battle versus good and evil um yeah. in, in in many people's cool mindsets Excellent. so just wanted to, cl to clarify that I want to take you to the first chapter of A Morbid Taste for Bones, and this is uh, Cadfil's sort of waking up from his sleep during a sermon. When they were discussing, you know, Brother Columbanus and all that, Cadfil's sort of like dozing off, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. this is the passage that Ellis Peters writes uh, to describe his experience in the Holy Land to kind of, kind of get us into his mindset. The heat of the sun rebounded from honed new faucets of baked rock scorching his face as the floating arid dust burned his throat. From where he crouched with his fellows in cover, he could see the long crest of the wall and the steel-capped heads of the guards on the turrets glittering in the fierce light, a landscape carved out of reddish stone and fire, all deep gullies and sheer cliffs, with never a cool green leaf to temper it, and before him the object of all his journeyings, the holy city of Jerusalem, crowned with towers and domes with its white, within its white walls." The dust of battle hung in the air, dimming the clarity of battlement and gate, and the hoarse shouting and clashing of armor filled his ears. He was waiting for the trumpet to sound the final assault, and keeping well in the cover while he waited, for he had learned to respect the range of the short, curly Saracen bow. He saw the banners surge forward out of hiding, streaming on the burning wind. He saw the flash of the raised trumpet, and braced himself for the blare. 
The sound that brought him leaping wide awake out of his dream was loud enough and stirring enough, but not the brazen blast of a trumpet, nor was he launched from his stillness towards the triumphant storming of Jerusalem. So, right then and there, Ellis Peters, in her historical uh, acumen, presenting us with a first-hand account of the fall of Jerusalem in 1099. That was at the end of the First Crusade, because that was the mm-hmm. final goal of the Crusaders, was to capture the city of Jerusalem. And Cadfil was there. It mentions an earlier in that same chapter that he served under a man named Godfrey of Bouillon. And Godfrey of Bouillon, along with his brother Baldwin of Boulogne, were one of the several figureheads of the First Crusade. And... Uh, they both, in the end, ended up in it with certain land and power uh, because of their because of their participation in the Crusades and their leadership during it as well, uh, whether honorable or nefarious, depending upon if you go between Godfrey versus uh, Baldwin, who was a much more Machiavellian yeah. figure. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, Baldwin becomes the king, but I'll get to that. Um, just going into the context of the Crusades, uh, for those who are not really in the know, while this book does establish that Godfrey of Bouillon is the man in which Cadfil served under, in further books it mentions that he was actually under the banner of one Robert II, uh, Duke of Normandy. Not Robert II, of, he was a king, but because he was the second Robert of that family to be the Duke of Normandy. And this is Robert Curthose, who was, in fact, one of the sons of William the Conqueror. And eventually, Robert Curthose, uh, as well as his brother, William Rufus, end up becoming supplanted by their brother, Henry I, uh, as King of England. So Curthose would later be imprisoned by his brother, Henry I of England, and Cadfell served under, under him as a foot soldier in Normandy. And from that point, during when the Crusades began, Curthose is the one that leads Cadfell under the banners of Godfrey as well when they march across Europe to reach the Holy Land. Now, how much um, further in this series do we have to read before we, we get that? I, I don't know. I was just checking the background of it, but I just wanted okay. to see historically, like, Godfrey of Bouillon, because he was from Wales and, in, and then for in England, Cadfell. So I was wondering why he would be associated with Godfrey of Bouillon, which is more of a central France kind of domain that he had. Uh, versus, you know, like Normandy, or, or particularly like, yeah, Normandy and England, which at that time were connected due to, you know, mm-hmm. the dynasty that was established by William the Conqueror in 1066. Only 30 years, uh, not, not even 30 years before, you know, the crusade started. Okay. In book one, we learned that, that he was with Godfrey of Bouillon at the siege mm-hmm. of Jerusalem. Also at the siege of Antioch is, is also mentioned because Godfrey of Bouillon was was a big part of that as well, which was the which was the battle prior to the fall of Jerusalem. It was actually probably the biggest struggle of the entire campaign of the Crusades was what was the siege of Antioch. Um, after Antioch, Jerusalem was was a bit of a cakewalk, not a hundred percent, but you know they were already grim and prepared for Jerusalem by their experiences at Antioch and and a lot of the the, the conditions and stresses that they were put under. Um, okay. Uh, let me just kind of give you the main points of the of the uh, First Crusade, as it was called. So Constantinople, 1095, Alexius Comnenus, the emperor of the Byzantium Empire, which is basically what the Eastern Roman Empire became after the, you know, after the split that occurred back in the third century uh, AD, 
uh, is he's wary of, and and one thing to point out too is that Byzantium is Greek Orthodox, and they are the central power of Christendom. Like even though we have the papacy in the West in Rome, and they control all of the European kingdoms, England, France, Holy Roman Empire, and all that. Like they preside over all that. The Greek Orthodox Church rules in Greece, in uh, northern Greece, like uh, past the Black Sea. And Constantinople at this time was probably the greatest city in the world. Like it was on the frontiers of, you know, the Muslim empires, but it was considered like, you know, the greatest city in the world uh, compared to anything. So uh, we cannot dismiss, you know, like at the time of how great a power Byzantium was. Mm-hmm. So basically on the borders of the Byzantine Empire around Constantinople, uh, the Seljuk Turkish Muslim Empire is encroaching on the borders. Uh, the Emperor Alexius sends for aid to the Patriarch of Rome, which is the Pope, and mm-hmm. that Pope at the time is Urban II. Now, the Eastern Emperor is hopeful for a horde of Western mercenaries, maybe get back some settlements in Anatolia, such as Nicaea, but he gets more than he bargains for when Urban holds an ecclesiastical council at the town of Clermont in central France. So it's November 1095, and the Pope delivers a sermon that would galvanize the world. As you may know from this point, the last several hundred years has the rise and rapid spread of Islam throughout the Western Asia, Northern Africa, even to the point of the southern portion of the Iberian Spanish Peninsula and various islands of the Western Mediterranean. They are now being ruled by Muslim caliphates, which is sort of like princedoms, um, territories controlled Mm -hmm. by Muslims, like this idea of like provinces held by like a... uh, like a caliph is what they were called, which is like a governor, essentially. Okay. Um, November, uh, so basically, uh, to, a, to a large gathering outside the city of Claremont, um, Pope Urban II vilifies the Muslim occupiers of the holy city of Jerusalem. It's an extremely racist act of demagoguery, where Muslims, belligerent and peaceful, are demonized into inhuman monsters who terrorize and slaughter their Christian victims in acts of extreme barbarism. Now, as I mentioned, bordering the lands of the Seljuk Turkish Empire, one of the powerful Muslim kingdoms, was the city of Constantinople. And the emperor, and this is, and the reason why Urban makes his speech is because the emperor reached out to him, asking him for assistance. He just wants some men, a couple thousand knights, just to, you know, secure the borders, take back some forts, you know, like just to give myself a foothold on the frontier. And just and keep and keep control of the of the Silk Road, the most important trade routes coming from the east. Now, for Urban II, dealing with the crisis of faith within the Roman Catholic Church since his predecessor Gregory's struggle with the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, not to mention the rise of the Normans in France as of 1066 in England and the growing ambitions of the kings of France, he found the papacy in a very vulnerable place. So what better way to unite the fractured, increasingly faithless Christian kingdoms of Europe under the banners of Rome than a sanctioned holy war against Islam? So Urban II ensured this by attacking the low-hanging fruit of these kings, dukes, and barons, which is their immortal soul. Christianity was a bulwark to hold a chaotic, bloody mess together, and blood needed to be spilled in order to preserve order in society. So lawlessness, judicial or extrajudicial, ensured the rule of law in this violent landscape of which chivalry would later be born. So Urban II promised these lords and their bannermen that they could erase their sins, complete remission, unequivocally, by sewing a cross to their gambeson, tunic, what have you, and march to the east and liberate Jerusalem from the infidels. 
This sermon was a slow burn of growing realization of stoppered ambitions and moral insecurity, and this propelled hundreds and thousands of Western and Eastern Europeans to the siren call of crusade. <laughs> so, we know from a morbid taste of bones that Cadfield took part in the first crusade, that he at one point served under the command of Godfrey of Bouillon during the siege of Antioch. Further research regarding Peter's subsequent releases confirms that Cadfield left Wales and England under the banner of Robert. We already discussed mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. so I just wanted to address in the context of where we are now. Sure. So, with Urban Sermon being the launch pad, several powerful French, Norman, Italian lords became the leading figures of the First Crusade. Now, when I say Italian lords, I'm actually referring to not just the Normans that controlled France and then also controlled England at this time, but also some of these Norman families also, you know, seeing what William the Conqueror did and whatnot and how that family got into, was growing, becoming more and more powerful. These Norman, their cousins decided to, you know, take control of Southern Italy. So that, therefore, uh, therefore you get guys like um, Bohemian of Taranto in Southern Italy, who was a big player in the mm -hmm. Crusades as well. Even though he's considered an Italian, he was actually a Norman from Northern France, right? So... Uh, he's a, he was also a very big player, a great strategic g general in the Crusades, a great warrior. Um, so we have Godfrey already mentioned. We have the southern count of Toulouse, Raymond. Uh, we have another Robert of Flanders. I mentioned Boulogne. I mentioned uh, Bohemian of Taranto. There's also another one called Tancred, another Norman Italian. And then, of course, we have Godfrey's brother, Baldwin. Uh other lords and barons also went on crusade, men like Stephen of Blois, who wrote to his wife Adela his account of his travels. On the opposite end of things, we have Princess Anna Comnena. She was the daughter of the Byzantine emperor, and she kept a lively account of her experiences. Uh, kind of like, um, I don't know if you read Dune, but like mm -hmm. uh, the Princess Erlan, uh, who, who basically has like these introductory like chapters to her history mm -hmm. for each mm -hmm. chapter of, of the book. So, yeah. and apparently I heard that Herbert was actually inspired by Anna Camina's writings when he was writing oh, cool. Dune. Cool. Yeah. And of course, that's a story that also talks about jihad and crusade mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So, sure does. I thought that was an interesting connection. Um, as the recruitment of the European gentry intensified, the common people also caught the fever of the crusade. Tens of thousands of them got a head start over the crusader princes as they were known. This was the People's Crusades, and within six months, after carving a swath of Jewish pogroms, that's right, they considered yeah. Jews infidels as well, and they also wanted to get to heaven because of the remission of sins that was promised by mm -hmm. crusade through mm -hmm. Urban II, which was a great spin to get everyone to, to join uh, yeah. up and cement the power of the that, Roman Catholic yeah. Church. Like, Urban II, okay, he might be pious in his own personal beliefs, but this is an ambitious, power-hungry individual. And, uh, yeah, and he's basically also kind of, I guess, shaking his saber at the Eastern Empire, too, right? Saying, we can just be just as powerful as you. And so, you want soldiers? I'll give you soldiers. And, you know, mm -hmm. and just demonstrate, mm -hmm. you know, to the, to the Eastern rival how powerful he actually is. Uh, the um, costumery changed, certainly, after the Roman Empire, um, you know, became the Holy Roman Empire, and you lose touch with these sorts of figures like Marius and Sulla and Caesar, but there is still that ambitious gain, and there's still that huge, as you said, insecurity about losing territory, about losing followers, about about giving up and yielding your riches and your resources to foreign power, and it, it's never gone away. It, it's still with us today, of course, but the Crusades are, are particularly fascinating because so much of it is guised with that religious rhetoric. Yeah, 100%. And 
the interesting part too is that it's the religious rhetoric and that was the fervor that you know that brought on the people the regular people to also take part in crusade as well because they realized that all the terrible things that they had to do to survive and in a period where like people thought at the end of the millennium when 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 1000 hit that the world was coming to an end and Mm -hmm. it didn't so Mm -hmm. not only was you know there was political crises within the church and the faith but there was also like a crisis of faith in itself and where the world was going and it's just now it's just a land of outlawry and these like you know these feudal barons controlling all these territories of Europe just having tribal warfare glorified tribal warfare over these territories and and urban wanted to rein them all in right and so that's how he was able to do it was through the crusades hmm. um it's quite fascinating really you know upon reflection you think about Cadfell's character and how like many others perhaps he joined in the crusade to uh, ensure himself a place in heaven and now later in his life he reflects on that performance much like didius falco has done of his own time in hmm. britannia with the silver pigs and he's trying yes. to better his life now to amend for the sins he did then it's really, really yeah. interesting how the characters are and drawn. And we know for, from the book, right, that he was 100% at, the, at Jerusalem. And mm-hmm. if he was there and he took part in the storming of the city, yeah. then he has a lot, of, lot, of, lot to atone for. Mm-hmm. A lot. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll get to that. Um, yeah, so, while this, so, while the, so, this, so basically, not only the, the, the princes were on crusade, all the, all the dukes and all the, all the barony of Europe, but the people as well, amassed thousands of unclean uh, individuals led by this one. One of the main leaders of this group was a, um, a, a, a monk, I believe he was, named Peter the Hermit, and uh, he was a, a big proponent of the, of the People's Crusades, marching through, you know, going from France, England, marching across through Germany into the Lowlands, into the East to reach, you know, Constantinople, right on the very end of Europe, where the Europe and Asia touch, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so while they're while they're going while they're you know as I said they're cutting a swath basically. Uh, as, as I mentioned, so they're there to they're, they're there to go and free the Holy Land from infidels in their you know in their one track minds. They're just going to slaughter Saracens and, and Arabs. But what they're also doing is that when they go into the towns as they go through Europe, they're also slaughtering Jews on a mass scale, going through the towns as they do it, and 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 and, and doing that for God's glory as well. So it was pretty awful. Um, how, and basically, this at one point, they, this this madness goes on for thousands of miles until they reach Constantinople. Uh, and then, but but then they were left just to sit there and ponder the splendor of the Bosporus, because this was not the force the emperor had in mind. Uh, so, because he would not let them into the city, this unclean mass, like he would not let them in. The uh, the Eastern Emperor uh, Alexius, he just mm-hmm. closed the gates on them, and so they had to continue into the frontier upwards and onwards, I guess, right into the Turkish frontier. And the Sultan of the of Rum, the of the Seljuk Turkish Empire, Kiraj Arslan. Uh, he did not lead them reach the Holy Lands uh, without any semblance of organization or strategy. A poorly armed peasants' army is what they were. This people's crusade was decimated. Like very few returned home. Like they were just wholesale destroyed uh, by the Turks. And by the year 1096, in the wake of this crusade, the Crusader armies, the princes' cru- crusaders, they arrived at Constantinople. They were given a much warmer reception uh, than their predecessors. And with this brief respite, the Crusaders then crossed into the frontier. Emperor Alexius had provided his own tacticians, guides, and scouts so that the Crusaders would make good progress into Anatolia. Nicaea, which was a Byzantine uh, Eastern Roman Empire holdfast for centuries, was liberated from the Saracens. 
As they proceeded deeper into mainland Turkey, the Sultan's army reached them in the valley of Dorlaeum, but despite being severely outnumbered, the Christians managed to fight their way out of the nest of Seljuk cataphracts and foot soldiers sending Arslan into retreat. Uh, these were not the villains of the People's Crusade. By villains, I mean V-I-L-L-E-I-N-S, which was a term to describe the peasantry. These were, you know, these were warriors, uh, these individuals that were fighting against the, the Turks and giving them a run for their money, so to speak. Uh, Baldwin of Boulogne, sharing ambitions more secular than sacred, connived into the capture of Edessa and uh, trailed off from the main quest. Edessa, sorry, not Odessa, to be concerned mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the port on the Black Sea. Uh, so he carried over his own territory, uh, but he would eventually be rewarded for other people's work in the end. Uh, the Crusaders carried onwards with their great baggage train through the Taurus Mountains. Starvation and malnutrition and death by falling did more to lower the Crusader numbers than Turkish arrows. Men and women and children and servant camp followers died by thousands until they reached the northern domain of Syria and to the west, the great city of Antioch. The far greater casualty of the First Crusade, by the way, was the esteemed cavalry of these Frankish knights. Uh, the horses, just thousands of them, they, they mostly all died, even like the most noble uh, steeds that, you know, mm. destriers okay. that these knights had. In the midst of the sieges of Antioch and Jerusalem, the crusader princes found themselves astride asses and oxen instead of, you know, mighty steeds, you know, as you would picture them, you know, as knights, right? They were all on like like donkeys and, and uh, beasts of burden because, mm -hmm. and, and their boots were dragging on the ground, you know, as they walked around the battlements of the cities and whatnot. Uh, now, uh, Antioch, which this great Greco-Roman metropolis with its fearsome walls housed within it, the Basilica of St. Paul, was also where St. Peter is said to have first preached and gospel became a focal point of the perseverance of the Crusaders. Uh, led by its governor, Shuan, the garrison of Antioch held strong. The crusaders besieged the great city for months on end, reducing to eating thorns and their own boots at one point, determined to bring low the city and create a Christian bastion into the Holy Land to prop them against the Seljuk and Fatimid Muslim forces that awaited them in the Holy Land. Shuan and his men did their best, confident that Kerboga of Mosul, a brilliant and fierce Iraqi general, would soon arrive to relieve them. The Christians eventually broke the siege, perhaps propelled in their morale by the discovery of one Peter Bartholomew. For once they managed to take the city, uh, with Governor Shuan killed by a commoner during his escape, the Crusaders had access to the Basilica, where in the ground, the said Peter Bartholomew, after some digging, recovered what he plainly identified without a shadow of a doubt was the Spear of Destiny. Yes, this shiv of metal beneath the Basilica was supposedly the very same spear that pierced Christ's flank in the climax of the crucifixion. Believing in, in this find as proof of God's sanction for their actions, the Christians steeled themselves for the approach of Kerboga's army. Raymond of Toulouse supported Peter Bartholomew and his Spear of Destiny and became at this point the de facto leader of the crusade. This will took them through Kerboga's arrival for in the end, Kerboga and his forces were defeated, and Antioch was secure. But many doubted Peter Bartholomew and his holy relics. Adamant in his religiosity, or of his con, one of the two. Peter requested to undergo, undergo a trial by ordeal. Short story, the man literally walked into the fire. Into, short story, the man literally walked into a fire, and he succumbed to his burns days later. So he was proven, uh, that sort of basically took the fizzle out of the so-called Spear of Destiny, and uh, it all came to an end after that. And uh, that also took out Raymond of Toulouse's uh, control of the First Crusade. 
It was at this point he, uh, that Raymond began to lose status as overseer of the Crusader army. So with Antioch secure, as secure could be, the Crusaders made their last progress to Jerusalem. A bitter siege endured, but access to the port of Jaffa ensured provisions and timber to be accessible, which led to the building of great siege towers. At some point, the walls of the holy city were finally breached, and the Saracen forces were overwhelmed. Now, thus far, we have seen outnumbered Christian forces prevail against larger Muslim hosts. Clearly, like the Catholic Church, the Islamic world was reeling from its own internal divisions and the schism between the caliphates following the, world, the word of the, of the Shiites and Sunni. Mm-hmm. Both claimed descent from the Prophet, and this created further splitting down the line of the forces, as well as the ambitious Saracen generals and not-so-loyal soldiers. By wearing the Saracen defenders with their resolve and further fervent rel- religiosity down, the Christians prevailed, and upon entering the great city, they slaughtered thousands of Jews, Muslims, women, children in the streets in a bloody release that had been pent up for over a year. One wonders now, given we know from his own thoughts, Cadfil had some sort of PTSD of horns blasting and storming the ramparts of Jerusalem. Kind of like, you know, Tom Cruise's character in The Last Samurai about all the, you know, all the slaughter that he did in, in, in the Indian Wars of uh, the, the post-Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. And then how he, he's, and he becomes like a, a very, very dangerous and uh, suicidal alcoholic almost. So it's kind of this, not as, we wouldn't call Cadfil suicidal, but he's definitely seeking some sort of penance for his actions. Yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, so did he take part in this bloody retribution? And, I mean, he was at the siege and he stormed the ramparts, so it's very clear that that's most likely what Ellis, is, uh, Ellis Peters is suggesting. Well, the, the moment, in, wider- the, the moment in, the, in the church, in the chapel, is, is not so much a daydream as it is a flashback. It's a, it's a horrific flashback. Yes. Now, my only gripe with that is that there is so little touching of that after we leave the first vignette. Like, we don't get a lot more reflection of Cadfell as the Crusader. And I get it. Maybe as a one-off story, we don't need too much more of it. But that was some of the most compelling writing in that one paragraph you read out. And I feel yes. as though Cadfell could have been better chiseled for not just the historical reader, but for the dramatic reader. If maybe Peters had invested a bit more attention into that side of his character and, and, and saw him, or let us see him grappling with that past, uh, what brought him to the monastery, what brought him to the brotherhood, like all of that would have been quite, quite an interest to me. Yes, yeah, me too. I, I definitely agree. I think there was uh, a, there was a dearth of historical uh, information, a, a treasure trove, really, that could have been utilized here to really mm-hmm. bring up the characters uh, dramatically in the story and compel me. But we'll get into we, know, we will. my thoughts we will. on that overall. Yeah, we will. But, but just but to I'll, kind of wind sorry. down now. Yep. yep. Yeah, just, just just to wind down now. So yeah, you wonder if he takes part in this bloody retribution. You know, his predilection for a quieter, calmer existence makes sense. You know, if he did, if he indeed did share in these experiences of the soldiers mm-hmm. of the first sure. crusade. So in the end, Jerusalem fell. The crusader princes divvied up the Holy Land. This land was called Outremer across over the sea. Is what what the French transla- translation is. Uh, they, it was composed of the crusader states of Antioch, Edessa, Tripoli, and Jerusalem. Baldwin of Boulogne, uh, the schemer, he would become the first king of, of, the, of the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem. And this misery would grind on for centuries more, and, and probably even today as well, because it's so imprinted in uh, the East versus West. Um, oh, yeah, yeah dynamic narrative of our world, Christian versus Muslim. Um, 
that those types of ideologies, those types of people, those beliefs. Um, it's definitely a traumatic uh, scar on humanity, both Western and Eastern uh, civilization. Feels like a trap out of which we can't escape, doesn't it? I, I'm it, using it really we does. as a universal pronoun here. Um, I agree. And the thing is, is that like the Muslims of Antioch who controlled Antioch, like the Seljuk Turks, they allowed the Christians and the Jews to, uh, you know, practice their religion freely. They were completely free to do what they wanted to. Even Christians could do what they wanted to that were living in the city. They could do what they wanted to. But that meant nothing to the Crusaders. Mm -hmm. That meant nothing to Urban II, obviously. So we have him to thank, I think, for this monstrosity that would carry on for centuries afterwards, you know. Mm -hmm. Um We'll get interesting characters coming after this, too, besides these guys. You know, we'll have in, in the Third Crusade, when it begins, uh, we're going to have, you know, Saladin, and we're going to have Richard the, Richard the Lionheart, and King Louis, and then we're going to go to the Egyptians of the Fatimids taking control and all this stuff. Then eventually we're going to get to the fall of Constantinople in the, four, in the 15th century, and then, you know, the birth of the Ottoman Empire from that. So, uh, yeah, it's a downward spiral for sure from there. <laughs> uh, so that's basically the Crusades in a nutshell that I could give you. Um, I think I brought down the complexities of it the best I could, giving you an overall idea of of the journey. It's really fascinating. There's very complex characters mm -hmm. uh, involved and individuals that you'll really, you know, like their stories if you dig into it more. I definitely recommend Thomas Asbridge's The Crusades, the authoritative history of the war for the Holy Land. Uh, Dan Jones, another historian, he's done some great books on the on the Knights Templar, uh, as well as on the, on the Crusades, a book called Crusaders that he put out in the past year or two. Um, to give you all different perspectives on on the on the war for the Holy Land, so please check that out. And uh, and if just in terms of you know if you just want to watch a really good movie on the Crusades, the best I could recommend is Ridley Scott's director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, check that out for a lot of the ideological and uh, thematic uh, ideas behind the Crusades and a critique of those ideologies as well. And the director's cut really well breaks that down and gives us a more historical. Uh, accuracy than the cut down version that we got back in the mid 2000s so check that out okay that's it though that's that's the crusades we know what cadfield's been through now we we got an idea about what he's suffered through so maybe that will give us some insight uh, in our breakdown of the book to see you know what's into his character all right nice work josh that is good context and let, let's just uh, before we get into our discussion of the book let's hear a little bit about ellis peters because i know you got just a bit on her as well Yeah, absolutely. So uh, she was born Edith Mary Pargeter on September 28, 1913 in Horsehay, Shropshire, England. Uh, she died October 14, 1995 in the exact same place. Her father was a clerk at an, at an ironworks. Uh, she has a, they, ha they had a Welsh background, her family, and this would definitely factor into her writing, particularly the Cadfell novels. Mm -hmm. uh, and it maybe it seems historically that's what she was really interested in. As you mentioned, you know, we shouldn't really play upon the Crusades in this book, really, or any other juicy background history. Instead, she focuses on, you know, the people of Wales and their lifestyles at that time. And Cadfill, you know, he wanders through there and he does what he does. But, yeah. you know, that's all. We, we definitely get Wales on page 100% in this book. We do. Uh, we, we get it on, on page. And it, it's more the crofter intrigue that she seems interested in 
Yes, the crafter intrigue. That is a really good way to describe it. I like that. I think that's how I, I like that. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she served on the home front in the Second World War as an administrator for the Women's Royal Naval Service. Uh, she learned Czech after visiting Czechoslovakia in the 50s. Uh, she was a self-taught scholar who was given an honorary degree from Birmingham University. Hmm. She wrote history and historical fiction, and she translated Czech classic novels. Very cool. Yeah. Brothers of Gwynedd Quartet is a story about Welsh historical fiction. A series, actually. There was about four books, I believe. Uh, this was prior to the publication of A Morbid Taste for Bones and the beginning of the Cadfell series. She also wrote a, wrote a series about the Second World War. It was a trilogy with a character called Jim Benison. Uh, now, her name, Edith Mary Pargeter, the reason why she took her the, the pseudonym uh, that she has is that her brother's name was Ellis, and one of her friend's daughters, uh, who she was fond of, was named Petra, hence Peters. Mm. Her books, uh, they sold over $6.5 million, and she was known to appreciate ideals of medieval Catholicism, but also very critical of it. Uh, she had a huge fan base uh, in terms of her legacy. She appeared on the top 100 crime novels of all time list in 1990, published by Crime Writers Association in the UK. Yeah, she was also top 100 that. in the mis- yeah, pretty crazy. That's like Chandler le- level. Also top 100 in the Mystery Writers of America, published in 95 list. And 2010, the Wall Street Journal listed her novel uh, in uh, Morbid Taste for Bones in five best historical mystery novels. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's quite high a legacy. praise. High praise. Yeah, and she had a big like fan send off too when she died. After her death, a stained glass window was installed at which, uh, depicting Saint Benedict at Shrewsbury Abbey, <laughs> cool. dedicated to Pargeter slash Peters. And the fans donated all of this, you know, for for this to happen. So that's that's really neat. Really neat. That is really nice. Yeah. Uh, regarding historical context of the novel, everything that we read about St. Winifred, true individual that existed, well, her the hagiography of that mm-hmm. individual existed anyways. I don't, I, I can't really attest there's any historical evidence for her head healing, <laughs> her head, like kind of T-1000 style sewing back onto her body or something like that. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I don't know about that part at all. Uh, but we know that, for example, uh, Robert Pennant, the prior that's, that we meet in uh, in uh, Morbid Taste for Bones, the ambitious Norman prior, he was a real individual. Uh, he also translated uh, the 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 life of Saint Winifred as well from Welsh to Eng- to French, uh, which cool. would be the the, the lingua franca mm-hmm. of uh, Shrewsbury Abbey because it was Norman England, right? So, yeah. Now, this story takes place in 1830 in 18... Sorry, 18. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Uh, This story takes place in 1137. And this is just at the time when Stephen, I believe, has claimed the throne of England after the death of Henry I. But the other claimant to the throne that Henry had designated, uh, his daughter Matilda, would not arrive in England until 1139. So the reason why we talked about, you know, we're talking about, are we going to experience the the, the shipwreck years, the anarchy in this particular story? And that's the reason why is because Matilda hasn't landed in England yet. Maybe other novels in the future will deal with that context. I don't know. But basically everything that we read and about the names of the princes that existed and the priests that existed in Wales, in in Gwynedd, those were real people based on real people as well. Except for, you know, our main characters, our lists of suspects and whatnot that we have in our supporting cast. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So that's uh, the Crusades. That's the historical background on a morbid taste for bones. I think it's a good foundation for uh, moving forward. I got a little summary here, um, as mm-hmm. usual. Uh, I'm going to give us the fine points of this story in a, um, I hope, in a very prosaic way. Yeah, looking forward to it. So this bit, Josh, has been pre-recorded because you've been on stage for a while now. So let's uh, give you a rest, and we'll play this for everyone. This is Josh's summary on. A morbid taste for bones. Enjoy, and we'll catch you on the other side. Hope you like it. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 1187. Heribert, the abbot of Shrewsbury Abbey in Shropshire, one of the marcher earldoms on the English and Welsh border, has given consent for a great enterprise. Now the abbot is a soft old touch and is oblivious to the ambitions of his prior, Robert. Robert's veins are filled with Norman-Welsh nobility, and he wishes to increase the abbey slash his own prestige, and what better way to do so than for the abbey to get hold of a sacred relic. By the way, a relic is essentially the physical remains of a saint, in this case, Winifred, a Welsh girl converted to Christianity who rejected the advances of the then Prince of Gwynedd, Craydoc, and lost her head after he ran her down in anger. She fulfills the hagiographical criteria with the fact that a. a spring sprouted from the exact spot her head landed, and b. her head suddenly became miraculously attached to her body. She then served as a nun, doing saintly things until she died a second time. Going back to the present day, that is, the present day in the context of this tale, enter our protagonist, the 57-year-old brother Cadfell. Cadfell is a Welshman, a man-at-arms that took part in the First Crusade and kept the peace in the Crusader states with a captaincy in the Navy and other commissions until he lined up the razor blade for a tonsure 17 years ago. After a colorful half-century of existence, he now prefers the quietude of the cloisterhood, tending to the herbal gardens of the abbey. Two novice monks assist him, the blue-blood Columbanus, a spare son of a prominent Norman family, and the ginger-haired brother John, a young man of solid bearing but not anyone of note. It was Columbanus that got the ball rolling. He has an apoplectic fit and backed by brother Jerome, who experienced a saintly vision of Winifred as he dreamed lying next to the recovering Columbanus. The urgency is created to escort Ree Steele, the remains of St. Winifred from her shrine, where it is not being properly attended to, all the way to Shrewsbury. Cadfield goes along because of Welsh being his first language. Brother John accompanies them, along with Robert's sub-prior Richard, Brother Jerome, and Brother Columbanus. The party heads out, complete with the coffin in which they will bring St. Winifred's remains. Father Howe, the local priest, stands firm against the exclamation, at least as long as the people of Gwytherin haven't given their consent yet. So Prior Robert holds a town meeting, pleading his case that the Shrine of Holywell of their Saint Winifred has long been neglected, and her hallowed self has demanded this via fevered visions. Her remains should be taken to Shrewsbury Abbey, where the relics will be given proper care. One of the biggest landowners in the region, Rissiart, says nope, but Prior Robert isn't giving up this easily. So he insults Rissiart by offering him a bribe. Rissiart's pride and sense of honor, same thing is naturally offended and he denounces Prior Robert's enterprise immediately. The townspeople follow this lead, leaving the hapless Prior sputtering with rage. The diplomacy of Father Howe warms the chagrin of Rassart and he agrees to meet with the Prior of the following morning. 
Alaski does not make it to their meeting as his arrow-pierced body is found in the nearby woods. Suspects abound, all with concrete motives. First among them is Engelard, a Saxon-born outlander living under the generous kindness of Rissiart. He just so happens to be in love with Rissiart's tree-climbing, fiery young daughter, Sinead. Having encountered the lovers' meeting prior to the town meeting, Cadfil is shocked to discover with everyone else that the markings on the fletchings of the arrow are identified as belonging to Engelard. TLDR, Engelard and Sinead are in love. The son of the other lord, Cadwallon Peridor, is also in love with her. Rissiart wanted neither to marry Sinead, especially Engelard, who is an outsider. Now, Rissiart's been murdered. Theories are presented as to how Engelard could do something like this, but he makes a run for it. Brother John quickly succumbing to life outside the cloister. Thanks to the charms of Ines, the serving girl of Rissiart's, he assists in his escape by attacking Engelard's pursuers. Engelard is on the lam, and Brother John is confined by Prior Robert on charges of disobedience. He is imprisoned in Rissiat's barn. Via PTSD flashbacks, we have put together that Cadfil participated in the fall of Jerusalem, and being smack dab in the frenzy of that terrible massacre of thousands and thousands of civilians, it makes sense that he would have some forensic acumen when it comes to human anatomy. Weighed down by anachronistic tropes, Cadfil determines that Rissiart was not killed by an arrow, but that of a dagger in the back. This caused him to fall face first. Then it rained. Immediately thereafter, someone turned the body over and drove one of Engelard's arrows through the front and out of the wound in the back. Meanwhile, with Rissiart conveniently dead, Prior Robert holds another meeting with the townsfolk. With the voice of their conscience silenced, the mob agrees to the removal of Winifred's bones. Meanwhile, Engelard is still the prime suspect. Cadville still fills Sinead on the details of her father's murder. Prior Robert, Sub-Prior Richard, and brothers Jerome and Colobanus begin the proceedings, starting with the three-night vigil. Before the vigil begins, Willful Sinead asks everyone who is keeping vigil to honor her father at the end of each night by placing their hands on his heart. Prior Robert shows his asshole colors and nixes the notion. He feels Rissiard is all but damned for interfering with the relocation of the saint, and his murder is divine retribution for his sins. Cadfil and Columbanus are holding the vigil on the first night, but that night takes a predictable turn when Columbanus activates seizure mode. Another vision, you see. According to Columbanus' wide-eyed fervor, St. Winifred has decreed that Rissiard is forgiven for his sins and that he must lie in place of her remains when she is dug up. A minor point, Columbanus' fit and revelation prevented him from placing his hand on the old man's heart at the end of the vigil. Hmm, almost like he was trying to get out of that. The next two vigils pass by, and the exclamation begins. Winifred's skeleton, nearly intact, is swaddled in linen and placed into the reliquary slash coffin the brothers at Shrewsbury have built for her. Rissiart's body then gets the same linen treatment as the saint, with Sinead noticing the jealous Peridor in attendance, looking particularly somber, offers him a cross so that Peridor can place it on her father's body. He can't do it, though. Racked by guilt, he admits before all that it was he, after finding Rissiart in the woods, still carrying Engelard's arrows in its quiver, as they had been hunting together, took the arrow and used it to frame his rival. Many sympathized with Peridor since he was willing to accept the consequences of his actions, and because his poor mother is nearly driven mad by the experience. Cadfil tends to his mother, and notices that some of the poppy syrup had been taken from the bottle kept in the house, this very same house in which brothers Jerome and Colobanus had been lodging together the night before Rissiart was found. In the aftermath of finding the corpse, it has been discussed how Brother Jerome had fallen asleep as he was the only one that had drunk the wine between he and Columbanus during the night. But it wasn't wine that, that Jerome had drank. It was poppy syrup. 
Thus, Cadville, a verifiable 12th century master of deduction, speaks to Sinead in confidence once again. What we get is kind of a reverse Scooby-Doo, wherein the Scooby gang wears the creepy costume to scare the perp into making a confession. To wit, on the final vigil before leaving Witherin with the saint's remains, Sinead disguises herself as Saint Winifred, whilst Columbanus is keeping vigil in her shrine, demanding of him as to why he killed Rissiart. Half ambitious, half believing in his own bullshit, Columbanus breaks down completely and confesses to killing her father, the saint's noble protector. They nearly have him, but the illusion is lifted when he touches her veil. He recognizes Sinead instantly and leaps from penitence to bloodthirsty savagery, slicing at her with his dagger. She evades his slashes, but he manages to get away and runs off into Engelard. There is a struggle, and it ends with Columbanus captured. Only problem for her two lovers is that crazy bastard has gone and snapped his neck. Oops. Cadfield is all WTF, but quickly comes up with the plan. The author, Ellis Peters, leaves hints through the last pages of the book as to what Cadfield arranged. But it's pretty clear that they strip Columbanus, return Winifred back to her grave, and place Rissiard on top of her remains. Meanwhile, the ever-reaching religious con artist, the televangelist of the future would love this guy, Columbanus, gets the closest thing to sainthood, dumped and sealed into the reliquary coffin of which he was integral to commissioning. With no one the wiser, the Shrewsbury party departs, not before taking witness to another miracle, the calling to God of Brother Columbanus. Prior Robert and his fellow brothers, as well as the townsfolk of Gwytherin, are privileged to see the sight of Columbanus's robes, habit, and sandals surrounded by hawthorn petals piled on the floor on the shrine, the exact spot where Columbanus was attending his vigil. Screw miracles, dude playing Obi-Wan Kenobi'd. And so the land of Gwytherin prospered, Winifred's spring still flowed and healed thousands, Brother John, having a taste of the world, and er, uh, a nest, decided to comb over his tonsure. Engelard and Sinead married and had a kid named Cadfell. And Cadfell returned to his garden, no more change from where he left. Probably because the man fought in the First Crusade, engaged corsairs, met various beautiful women, and accomplished God knows what else. Therefore, anything that happened in those 200 pages probably bored him to tears. Um, about that. Ah, good summary, Josh. Yeah, really good there on the points of Cadfell's first adventure. And I'm sure listeners would agree that after the context on the Crusades, after the intro on Alice Peters, and after that step-by-step summary, um, with a nice little writing skill of your own in there, if you don't mind me saying, that um, we are ready to go to town and light our pipes. So, as always, on Lighting the Pipes, um, we light them up and we smoke them down. The P stands for Principles the I for investigation, the P for perpetrator, E for environs, and S for secondary or supporting characters. We give each of these components a market of five, which gives us then an index that we can draw from to get a score. A total of 25 marks available for each and every story that we review here on the show, big or small, and a morbid taste for bones is no exception. So I'm looking forward to this chat, Josh. Let's break into things with our principles. Absolutely. I'm just wondering, Scott. Yeah. What, what? What kind of? I guess they would smoke pipes back that in that time. I suppose. Hey. Oh yes, I, I think they would. We know they drink mead. That's one thing they certainly yes. do. Um, mead, of course, being a, a very 
traditional, sorry, a traditional honey ale, isn't it? Made well, they wouldn't honey. have tobacco because that would have been a new world crop. So they wouldn't have had tobacco. Right. Yeah, so we know they drink mead. So you know what? I'm just thinking now, I don't think they would have pipes to smoke at that time because mm. tobacco was a new world crop because Raleigh brought it over to the through, Elizabethan yeah. court. Yeah. Mm. So. Hmm. I wonder what they did smoke, but. Lotus leaf, maybe? I, I don't know. <laughs> Depending I don't on, know. I think you had to be in high noble circles, probably like in the Norman barony some, would have access to that and those kind of resources. Well, Cadfell had a herb garden. It's not inconceivable that there would have been some special herbs in there, if you know yeah, what I'm probably saying. Yeah, probably brought some. Probably bought some lotus leaf from the uh, Orient there. Yeah, well, he would have brought something back from the Crusade. Again, another area of the story that would have been neat to see more of, I think, his his uh, apothecary. Yeah, I'm curious to see, like, in further novels, if I ever do pursue them again, I'm curious to see if it gets more into the background of the women that he met as well. Like, mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, the Greek and the Italian girl, and then we also have the, the Saracen widow and at, mm-hmm. at, at Antioch. I think that would have been a very interesting uh, background to his character as well. But the, the brief mention of it, I guess, is good, is good for our, our principles breakdown, because it kind of gives an eye into his character and how he related to the other female characters in the story. Absolutely. You know, I like Catfell. I think Catfell is a cool character. I like Josh. He's a cool cat. I like that he has his own moral compass and that he can see the corruption in everybody. I, I, I like the hypocrisy. That. The hypocrisy and the corruption, yeah. I, you know, I like a couple of moments, particularly one where he talks to Rissiart about his mission not being his mission, but instead his abbey's. So he, he does make a. Um, a distinction between his own interests and his own M.O., if you will, and that of the higher power. Like, he almost tries to reason with Richard that way and saying, look, you know, I'm not wanting to take, uh, I'm not wanting to to, to come and infiltrate Guiter and, and remove these bones for myself or for my glory. I, I don't believe in it. I'm not righteous about it. He's not indoctrinated it. in the That's dogma. right. The way the Columbanus is, the way that... Columbanus, uh, Jerome, and yeah, particularly... Prior uh, Robert. Robert. Yeah. Well, I think Robert also has political ambition because back then, if you're the... if. If you're a bishop, or, or sorry, even a prior, you're probably the third son of a noble family that can't inherit land. So they send you, you know, to become a prior, to become a monk, to become eventually mm-hmm. a prior, and eventually, most likely, a bishop uh, mm-hmm. to influence, to help influence your family's power as well. That was really right. the plan. Once you're a bishop, as everybody knows, you get the private seats on the jets, you get the, uh, you know, the cocktail, champagnes, everything's going for you then. Yeah, you're on your way to the Holy See in Rome, even. The other yeah, in, in, yeah. instance, too, is, I guess we'll go into is uh, into the uh, perpetrator and even the supporting characters, is Columbanus, and how there's similarities between the sketching of his character and uh, Robert's as well. But they're very different mm-hmm. from Cadfil. Cadfil is his own man. I would say he's the church is a utility for him to seek the quiet life that he uh, yearns for. It's a mm-hmm. utility for him to uh, reflect upon his past life and maybe in his own personal way atone for his sins. And he's willing to follow the procedures. He goes to the Vespers. He goes to the Matrons. You know, he, he does the typical Benedictine monk stuff. But at the same time, he's his own man. 
and it's, it's quite clear that he's an independent figure in there. And uh, there are some who admire him, uh, who are in awe of him, such as John and, and others. But there's also some who, who are kind of indignant and even suspicious of him, like Robert, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. just finds Cadfield sort of like a, a poser almost, I guess you could say. Um, even though Robert, to me, is the biggest poser of all. <laughs> well, let me ask you, Josh, how religious do you really think Cadfell is? Because I like what you say there about the church being utilized for his ambitions of quiet life, and this is the way he can now achieve that. Do you see him? I, I don't read him as a terribly religious figure. He's certainly not zealous in the way that his no, his other no. fellow brothers are. But not there really is pious either. Nah, he's not. He's very much like yeah. he's very much like he sees the gray more so than the black and white. Mm-hmm. He's very much like, like the whole situation on how this the, how the story ends is very much something that Sherlock Holmes would do in something like you yeah, know totally uh, yeah mm-hmm. uh, in in the Abbey Grange murder for example. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's he makes that decision upon himself to be the judge and jury of what yep. he believes is morally right. Now, the thing mm-hmm. is, what's missing from this story and its character is I want to know why he went on crusade. If you show flashbacks of him going on crusade with his PTSD, I like a little bit more introspection as to why he did what he did and why he, you know, I, I think because I think that would have definitely have shown co- his religious colors. You know, why did he go on mm-hmm. crusade? Did he do it to save his soul because of some crimes that he did in his past life? Like, mm-hmm. it was just a lot like the people's crusade, like those peasants that 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 went there, you know, and like, but he, I mean, he was a, a bannerman. So maybe he had to go anyways, because he was this, because the martyr enough, lord yeah. that mm-hmm. he served under wanted him to, and he had no choice. Yes. So that could also be a reason too, now that but, I think but, about it, but... But it is, it's apt that you raise that because as we teased a wee while ago, just before your summary, there is a dearth of that. There is a lack on a, on Ellis Peter's part here. And maybe that's appropriate or at least excusable as a first novel lack. But there is a lack of that backstory being being dealt with. It is obviously interesting. It's obviously dramatic. Being saved for the future, obviously. Being saved for the future. But when she wrote this, did she intend for there to be as great a series as turned out. Like, I, I can't help but Judging wonder if it was just a cheap, her. if it was just a cheap, or maybe cheap's not the right word, a conveniently, historically, dramatically, you know, effective way to decorate the character and then do a little bait and switch. Like, oh yeah, well, this is what I'm, this is what makes him interesting. This is what makes him, you know, a pinup figure. And yet here I'm going to give you the, the crofter's intrigue instead. You know what I mean? Like, it is a bit of a bait and switch because we don't get a lot of, Cadfell the Crusader, we get Cadfell the old man, or the older man who doesn't even reflect that much on the Crusades, and we're left trying to work the puzzle pieces in, you know? Yeah, and also, like, because he's a former Crusader, he's a man, he was a man at arms as well, uh, that's what I, 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 I read about that after the Crusades. He, I love, I mean, I love a man at arms, himself. my favorite yeah. He-Man character. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> my favorite. Was Prince Adam in his story, or Skeletor? Any any of those guys coming around? Prince Adam of Bouillon. He was one of the. He was one. Of, he was one of the Crusaders. He never went through eternity. I'm sure, I'm sure they'd. No, I'm sure they otherized Skeletor in some capacity too. In, in that <laughs> Did he have a battle cat? Crusader He Man battle cat. Yeah. I guess uh, it's better to ride a battle cat than uh, oxen a donkey. and, and, yeah. and, and burrows. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if I had a battle cat, I'd ride it to school, man. Are you kidding me? Go to my day job and that. I'd hitch yeah. it up outside, throw some... What would you need to feed a battle cat as it was waiting for you to finish your school day? You'd need to feed it, like, some goats and shit like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's kind of like... Yeah, it's like, what, what, what would you feed it? I'm thinking now, like, you know, like, in... <laughs> like, Daenerys feeding her dragons. Like, does she just give them yeah. sheep or goats? Like, is, is that what he, is that what Skeletor and, and He-Man did for Battle Cat? And <laughs> I forget Skeletor's cat's name. I know it was like a purple panther or something. Yeah, like that's that. right. It was. Well, I mean, the cat. They're, yeah. they're not. Eat, they're not eating kibble, are they? I mean, they're not eating fancy feast. They want something bigger. <laughs> Definitely not fancy feasts. Uh, not whiskers either. Not uh, whiskers. No, that's not good enough. This despite you would think so. Maybe and they definitely weren't eating what the Crusaders were like soft thorns and uh, like Ugh, wet, wet thorns and 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 uh leather boots mm-hmm. uh horse well meat. i'm seeing a big i'm seeing a big red light here in the studio that uh, is our warning of uh going off track just a wee bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah if this was fraser Roz would be knocking on the window right now <laughs> <laughs> right let's get back to it I do ask the question, Josh, is it on Peter's part, this backstory, this incredible backstory that we wish we had more of, is it just a convenient way of decorating the character? Or do you think that she did in the back of her mind have a bigger plan for Cadfell uh, in which some of this could have been aired out to dry, you know? I think you can really say either of two things, either she did have a plan and, and she wanted to drag it out and spread out his character and develop it as it went. Or maybe it was her first novel. In, well, it wasn't mm-hmm. her first novel, though, because she wrote novels no. prior to this. She wrote a whole she did, yeah. series about um, Welsh like medieval history, the, mm-hmm. the the brothers Gwynedd, and she also wrote World War II stories. So she was already an established writer at this time period. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, so in my opinion, to me, I mean, if you write a mystery series like this, then you're looking to make bank. So to me, I would say she was in for the long haul, and I would say this was okay. probably meticulously planned out to drag mm-hmm. out in this fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You know, All right. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, we'll, give her the, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She doesn't need us uh, criticizing her too much. But let's just say it. <laughs> we both feel the same way that in this particular novel, as a first appearance of Cadfell, there is a lack of that backstory exposed for the reader, which we feel at least yeah. would have made for a much more interesting and compelling um, presentation of this complex figure. Because he is more than one dimensional. But at points in the story... The points in the story, he doesn't read much more. No, he seems for me, like unflappable. For me, no, for me too. Like he seems unflappable through the whole thing. Like he doesn't really have an arc in his story. Uh, he's the exact same from the beginning to the end of it. He just brings his own personal experiences to it, to every relationship in the story. You can tell that he's impressed by Sinead. And if, if and if he, you know, like if and if he were in Cloister, if he weren't in Cloister, he would probably, you know. Tap do the that? Karen Bay thing and <laughs> yeah, I was going to say <laughs> you're going to say something more tasteful. Well, I was going to say, yeah, like, yeah, not the Karen Bay kind of thing, but more like, you know, he would definitely, you know, uh, uh, she would be wife material to him, I, I guess is the mm-hmm. way that you would look at mm-hmm. it. Um, whereas if you compare him to Falco, he, you know, you know, he was reacted to everything in his story, he, even though he was a bit cliche. Cadville has presence, but I wanted something more from him. And I think mm-hmm. there was a lot that they could do to make his character a little more interesting, a little less uh, perfect. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he seems like too, too well constructed, almost bordering Mary Sue territories, if you know what very, I mean. Like, very, very interested that you you say that because I was struggling with exactly the same read on Cadville. Um, 
it's not odd for you and I to see eye to eye on something, but that that Mary Sue comment really struck a uh, struck a match with me because I feel as though this guy is just good right through. He's he's incorruptible, almost as though his past experiences, as mysterious and as hidden as they are from us, have galvanized his morality to such a point where he is he's almost like that grandfather figure, and I know he's not that old, but he feels like that that sort of sage who is always doing what you would expect as being morally upright and consistent and it does feel like he's just blemish free and that makes him difficult to relate to a little bit for me i definitely agree i wanted like i was much more interested in the supporting characters in in the story more than i was cadfell he was sort of just an observer to all that's going on like he's afflicted by those usual anachronisms of historical fiction of of, of a historical fiction character written in the present even though Peters allows Cadfield's background to play into his forensic acumen uh, more believably than, say, Falco. Sure, but yeah. at the same time, I found Falco a little more interesting than Cadfield because Falco had flaws, even despite how, how contrivingly he was written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any um, manipulation on the author's part to make Cadfield uh, more interesting in her eyes or make him more exciting in her eyes. He was just as he is on paper, and then that's it, and that's all she wanted to present. She seemed way more interested in, uh, the, as you said, the crofter's intrigue and mm-hmm. the, the, the pastoral imagery juxtaposed against, you know, Norman Anglo-Norman colonialism of the Welsh and all that that was going on of not only their culture but also of their religion as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the end, for the principles, I really like Cadfield. You know, in theory. It doesn't help the fact that, you know, I know in the television series that Derek Jacoby plays him, and I love Derek Jacoby. So automatically when I'm reading this book, I couldn't help it. I was picturing Derek Jacoby. I just couldn't help it. And I just pictured him because we never really got a description. Like the description that we were given could very well vaguely be interpreted into Derek Jacoby's countenance. And I just found that that sort of a, that presence that Jacoby has dominated the book but he, but to me, it kind of also took me out of his character as well. So mm-hmm. that's might be probably my own fault. But at the same time, I think it was in the writing already that he was still a bit too perfect. So in the end, I gave Cadfield three and a half. Well, I went for a three for very similar reasons. I, I didn't have the um, the Derek Jacobi bias as I was reading this. I, I didn't have that lens because I hadn't seen a Cadfell episode before. Um since reading this book, I was interested to see how that series worked, and so I have picked up the complete series, and I've watched some of them, and some of them are, are certainly entertaining, but I, I find them slow, and I find them dependent upon a real, real interest in this time period and in this sort of monastic day-to-day, and somewhat somewhat punchless, you know, Um uh, I, don't, I, watched, that's, I tried watching the episode for a morbid taste for bones and I just couldn't get into it. I'm like, why is I'm this not. guy bleeding all over the place in, in the middle? Like, I, I, and, it just, and the atmosphere <laughs> was, just so ha- was just so hazy mm-hmm. and smoky. And even me, who's interested in that time period, I would rather go watch, you know, something like the shadow of the tower or like the, the six wives of, of Henry the eighth or something, or Wolf Hall or something to me, that's just a bit more dynamic than what's being presented in this series. Dynamic is the word, Josh. You're right. And it, it's kind of how I feel 
about Cad Phil, that he could be dynamic and he might be dynamic, but we don't get a lot of dimension here in this story with him. I went for a three, which is not a failing grade because uh, he does have an interesting backstory. He is ultimately a, a a good figure. He is a figure of right, and there's nothing wrong with that, particularly for a, a readership that would be used to and inclined towards the sort of Christian and... Um, ecclesiastical reading. Um, but I guess the switcheroo at the end with St. Winifred's remains uh, doesn't just restore for Gwytherin what it perhaps rightfully deserves, but also reminds us that Cadfell can do little things when he sees it uh, appropriate. And that does show us his cleverness and it does show us his resourcefulness. And as you said, yes. it does make him more interesting, but it's only a hint of complexity. It, it, it isn't the complexity that we're looking for. So I went for a three. I found him on the whole workable, but dull as a figure, as a character. Um, and I, I don't think he needs to be, not with his, not with his in, incredible past. I'm not saying he needs to be brandishing a sword and, you know, going around slicing off peasants and things like that, but I, I, I do feel as though he would be a little more hardened and a little bit more resolved in the way he talks to people. I, I don't believe that he be, he, you know, he exits the crusade and just becomes a bureaucrat for the church. Like, yeah. I don't see that, but that's kind of how he reads, you know? Yeah, like we know that in the book as well, that after the the, the first crusade, he does uh, end up like, in, the, in, in I guess, serving for the king of Jerusalem's fleets, like off the off in the eastern in the eastern Mediterranean, mm-hmm. fighting corsairs, pirates, and and whatnot. So he definitely has a bit of a tact- tactician in him as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess he was a soldier during the crusades. So in this period, he probably has a command. So. That was some little, little, you know, you know, little, little tidbits that uh, Peter's left for us as well. But again, she doesn't exploit them for narrative gain or uh, emotional investment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to investigation then, our second pipes component. And of course, it's in the investigation as well, isn't it, where we talk not just about the plot, but also the writing style and uh, mm-hmm. some of those features that make the story stand out. So why don't you go ahead first on this one? I think we're in a writing style very similar to uh, Lindsay Davies in the uh, Silver Pigs and the Didius Falco world. I think, again, we're having a very uh, matter-of-fact presentation of a historical time period that's well-researched. It's very impressive, the depth of the historical research in this story, almost edifying too much, in my opinion. But you get down, you know, the visual imagery of Wales and the ascetic life of the Benedictines. That's well rendered. I found the emotions uh, within these stories surface level. Uh, characters were plot devices, as were their actions. I like the whodunit uh, when it first happens, but then it, to me it gets resolved clumsily, despite the ruse that's in- employed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found the humor in the characters were very banal and dry. I expected these crofters, these cottagers, these you know, these, these, these Welshmen to be a little more coarse, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I expected a little bit more, I guess, ribaldry, a little bit more bodiness, a little more sex, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you kind of get that when Shanette is, is in the picture and even, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and it, uh, even, you know, uh, Cadfield's own urgings. And then you also have John who was supposed to be the youthful audience surrogate for, you know, like, and he kind of disappears halfway through the narrative. And then we get this whole, 
yeah, forced really love does. story between him and Anest, and mm-hmm. and, that, and that doesn't really quite add up. I like Anest in terms of how she's loyal to um, uh, Suned or Cyanide, or <laughs> I'm going to keep Sinead. doing that through, the, through Sinead. Let's just say Sinead, like Sinead O'Connor, and, and, and to call it a day. Uh, <laughs> nothing compares, right? Uh, nothing compares to you. Yeah, exactly. But I just didn't feel, you know, like the humor, it was just very banal, very dry. I just didn't feel the passion of the Welsh people, um, you know, save for the victim and for for, for Sinead. Uh, it was very serviceable, but it was also very bland overall. So what did you score it? Three. Okay. I, I regretfully give it a three. Like, not, Well, no, I honestly give it a three, <laughs> yeah. but with great regret, I give it yeah. a three. Okay, well, this is interesting, Josh. I found that the writing, and I, I found that maybe, well, I'll start over. I failed this part of the pipes. And I've searched with myself, uh, regretfully as well, because I think the ingredients are there to make it better. But I just felt like the writing dragged on and on. And the lack of scenery change really, really inhibited my enjoyment of whales here. I mean, there are, as you say, there's some, particularly when they're entering with there, and you know, you get that, that description of like the, the greens and the different hues of green. And you feel like, okay, there's a, there's a painter here behind the pen. And I really like that. Like, you know, she, she's passionate about this environment. So let, let's get some more of it. But then the dryness, the aridity of, of just these people they're, they're like there's nothing going on here like this is the lamest town in the world and if it didn't have saint winifred's bones what the fuck would Gwytherin be on the map for there's nothing <laughs> here like you know oh man and, and Rissiard and his oh, fuck like his town council meetings must you know it must just be the most boring i don't know man it's like, like the welsh hobbiton it's like before oh. you know the beginning of lord of the rings you know like you have all the hobbits in their little worlds right and they're like little words worlds and and then you know so this big event happens or you know the, the norm the, uh, the 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 monks arrive to take the bones of their saint and you know everything gets all stirred up but mm-hmm. you want to feel the passion the fire of them like their anger of yeah. it like think about it mm-hmm. like think about it like and the writing missed this part to me anyways was to convey the passion like the only person who's, who's passionate at all in the entire story is Sinead but then mm-hmm. again the writer is always reminding us how passionate she mm-hmm. is. It's like she was describing someone that she knew, and mm-hmm. then she was just conveying, you know, those feelings over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and the, I, I mean, talk of repetition. I found that the sentences were just persistently long and dragging. And there's something about the writing style here that she exhibits, which I do not like. I found it really difficult to sink into this story. I liked the the beginning of it, and but but the minute that they get into Gwetheren and we meet all of these Welsh figures. Um, who are very difficult for me to differentiate from one another. Obviously, Richiart is Richiart, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I failed. I failed investigation because the plot as well doesn't Sorry. go anywhere. The plot doesn't go anywhere for me. I found that Cadfell's backstory it was is. was more interesting than anything that the the, the, the principal plot gives me, and that was a, a tease that I don't really think I can forgive Peters for because when when the brothers get to with Aaron 
they they go through the motions of meeting everybody and having mead with everybody and talking about it. And then, the, oh, there's the blackmail. But it wasn't really blackmail. I meant for you to do what you wanted with the money for Gwitharin and for the for the perf, you know, for the for the the bounty of the uh, of the area and all this stuff. And then it's like, oh, let's talk about the betrayal. Well, it wasn't really betrayal. The church just came and tried to bribe you. It happens every fucking day somewhere. Like if they don't bribe you with money, they bribe you with like the fear of death, right? So just kind of get over it, Rissiard. That's kind of what I was feeling like and and then there's like oh wait there's a girl in the trees but the girl in the trees is is actually like really sexual and and kind of vivacious but uh only brother john's allowed to act on that and he's like fuck the church i'm gonna go check out this this girl Anest because she seems pretty cool and then there's like the two then there's like the two the two welshmen who are who are uh, vying for the love of sheenhead and who will she choose and like and, uh, oh god and uh, aragorn yeah. no not not aragorn Engelard, sorry. No, Engelard, yeah. And, and you're like, okay, yeah. well, I don't know about either one of these. One of them shoots blue arrows and the other guy just doesn't. One of them shovels dirt. <laughs> like, they're just so boring. These people are so boring. You know what's funny? Boring. The very fact that, like, in this real-life old medieval Welsh village <laughs> no, or whatever is less exciting here. than, like, you know, Hobbiton in Lord of the Rings. Like, I, I find yeah, the Hobbits yeah. are more sexier than these people. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and listen, that's... This is our heritage. I mean, we both got Welsh blood, right? I know. And and not not like seven generations back. I, I mean, very, it's very close to us. But uh, it, I've it, seen other depictions uh, of Welsh society and film mm-hmm. and television, and and they were much more uh, spicy and more interesting than mm-hmm. than this was, in my opinion. And then the fact that you're setting this in a, in a period of incredible uh, ideological and social con, you know, crisis going on at that time in the world, mm-hmm. and like, basically, like in the border, like just over to the west. You have probably the buildup of a great civil war about to happen in England. Mm-hmm. You also have the Crusades, which you hint at, and then you're not showing any of this fallout happening. They're not talking about, for example, the fact that like so the so the Welsh people are under now the purveyance of the English at this time. Mm-hmm. The, the, like you know, there's there's an allegiance. There's sort of like a a forced alliance between the the Norman English and the uh and the princess of wales at this time the king of wales as well mm-hmm. and but but and and what, what but and the thing is is that these people were uh by the catholic church hundreds of years before like got, they mentioned saint bono and stuff like that how those people were indoctrinated into the roman catholic religion and they came up with their own saint their own personal saint in their area so that they could honor the the faith in their own way in their own country and then you have this 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 uh, retinue of monks, this entourage, this uh, yeah, you have this retinue of monks arriving, led by you know Prior Robert, who is a Norman himself, a colonizer, and mm-hmm. he's basically saying, no, you're saint. Even we conquered you, we forced you to become Christians, and you found your own saint, and now we're going to rob you of that as well. Mm-hmm. And they're taking those bones, and they're going to take them away, and none of the passion of that uh, concept to me stood out on the page like no, I was no I should no. I should have been moved by that I should have should have felt like you know the angst of the people in that situation and we only get that in a sense through Rissiart and Shined mm-hmm. but it's so blandingly presented that I just couldn't you know care yeah and, absolutely uh, right. that's unfortunate it is definitely unfortunate and and you are a reader who unlike many would have that understanding going into it. You understand the context and you understand the division and the sort of anger that has divided Great Britain. I mean, way back, you know, and its peoples way, way back. 
And so you understand that and it still, it doesn't come off. And so I wonder if Peters was reticent to, to talk about that, if she was aware uh, in writing in the 70s that, you know, Great Britain isn't, isn't as Confederate as, I don't know. But I mean, all you do Who is you get, you get the Union? idea. That was like in this 18th century, early 1700s. Yeah. yeah. The Act of the Union. Yeah, but, but there is that disappointment because... There is interesting history to be played out here, but we just read the bumper sticker like, oh, well, you you English cannot take our saint from us. And yes. it's it's inappropriate for you to take our saint from us. And we will we will do what our man Richard says we must do. And that is that. Yeah. And it's like, OK, well, who's like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. oh, God, like none of them can think for themselves or act for themselves, except for one who, out of passion, stif- stuffs a an arrow in the chest. Yeah, I wouldn't believe someone had the the, the fortitude. I, I don't know. I just found that whole thing like it was too modern for me. It was too anachronistic. That whole situation, how they, how that was done. I mean, maybe they could do that back then. I'm not saying that they can. I'm not saying that they were more intelligent as as we are now. But I'm just saying is that I just found there was just something too modern about how mm-hmm. that was portrayed. Yes. And circling back to the the original point, a three is a fair mark, but I, I for myself as a reader, I failed the investigation because it didn't go nervous. anywhere. Like we, we went there, we did something, and then we did the switcheroo. And along the way, we met a few people who are in love and a guy who got doubled over by the church. And we're trying to repatriate some of the, for some of those sins. And then he does it and goes away again. So it's like... It's just kind of like, well, if they never showed up, nothing would have mattered. Like, there's no impact on Gwytherin. Like, no. none. None at all. Apart from the fact that Brother John hooks up with the nest and realizes that he, yeah, was, never, he was never for it anyway. And that, that's there really it. Like, his is the arc that's changed the most because he recognizes that he's not for the church. Like, that, that's it. Yes. And, and so the story... goes back to solving crimes. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he, he solves the crimes, but... He doesn't really because, and this is maybe getting into the secondary players a bit, but for me, Brother Columbanus was telegraphed as the perpetrator really, really early with all of the poppies for treatment. It, it, and, it was almost know. like he was a deliberate, like, telegraphing, like, oh, yeah, so it can really, be him, really you know weird. what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Finish, finishing up on investigation, I felt the story was, it just dragged on and on and it never went anywhere. And that lack of scenery change did inhibit my enjoyment. I mean that sincerely. I feel like Wales is, as I've been there, it's a beautiful place. I felt like if she was in love with it, she would have given us more of it, not just this one little crafting environment. And, you know, it's, uh, the sentences, the writing style didn't, it didn't help kind of propel me forward. It was very slow and it was very kind of, I don't know. It just dragged, man. This this story just dragged for me in terms of investigation, at least. So I'm not going to be scoring this one high. I fail the investigation. I don't think it's a story that makes for anything but a 15 or 20 minute short episode of interest on television. I don't know how they made 45 minutes or 60 minutes as the Cadfell episode was. That was dull as well. For fuck's sake, that was dull. So... Yeah, give me I Claudius any day. It's a big it's a big thumbs down for me on this one. I'm afraid the investigation. I give it two. But hey, you know, there are people out there, 6.5 million, you said, have sold. So lots of people would disagree with me on that. But for me, as the type of reader I am, this was slow. They, and this was like... They must like their toast without butter. That's my feeling. Yeah, the toast without butter. Yeah, I bet the people of Gwitheran do like toast without fucking butter. Anyway, I, I yeah, I wasn't, wasn't one for this, man. And it didn't... It's like heavy snow. 
The sentences were like heavy snow, and the story was leading me up a hill and no sled at the you're top. Like Robert Frost, you're you're like Robert Frost. <laughs> yeah, there's just no fucking sled at the top. Like it's just oh okay, I gotta walk up another hill. Okay, here we go. Anyway, moving on to uh, the perpetrator. Uh, the perpetrator for this story yeah. is his brother, Colin Bennis. As I said, he was telegraphed as a perpetrator really early. He's just a selfish, ambitious monk who wants to do what he thinks will be good, not so much for the Abbey. But he has all these visions. You know, his visions are called into question when we see what he does at the end there by um, sticking the knife into Rissiart and then claiming that, no, no, he was uh, doing vespers and vigil over the uh, the remains of St. Winifred and all of this stuff. He was also seen heavy-handedly, I think, um, like as ambitious, right? And I, I know that ambition is a human trait, but in describing of monks in a mystery story, like particularly at the start, he is heavily telegraphed as being ambitious and so the only one yeah, that he's our enormous, radars are bleeping like yeah robert i don't know but by, by the time he recovers from his first illness and he returns from the well of gwitharen we know that he's not to be trusted and and that is just really like okay i'm playing catch-up i'm waiting 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 for ellis peters to tell me what i think i already know which is this guy can't be trusted he's going to get what he wants for the abbey and Revealing his character early on with that really heavy brush stroke, if I can call it that, I just think that Peter shows her hand a little early with the perpetrator of the story. And he's just, he's an oddball and ambitious visionary who wants and feels entitled to shit. And as you say, that Norman background would for the reader who's, uh, for the for the educated reader, the the context educated reader it would just telegraph it even further and more strongly so yeah i went for a 2.5 on the perpetrator because he was entertaining sometimes but it i didn't do a lot of guesswork here i'm the same i gave a 2.5 as well uh, i found prior robert was a really good ideological and narrative antagonist okay uh, I, I found him much more interesting and more compelling as a character mm-hmm. uh, than definitely Colin Bannis. And I can see him being kind of an antagonist throughout. Although I did read that the real Robert Pennant was in fact uh, not as as uh, malignly portrayed as in, in re- uh, was not as, uh, I guess, as you could say, uh, that, that he was not as morally ambiguous in real life compared to how he was portrayed in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be the writings of a Welsh of a person with a Welsh background, probably, you know, uh, not afraid to squander uh, Anglo-Norman English character, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Colin Bannis is used as a fake red herring and revealed as the killer, mm-hmm. and that failed to move me. As mm-hmm. you said, he's very telegraphed and hooked almost mm-hmm. to the point going, okay. It better not be him. I really hope it's not. I thought I might be interested. To, I, I was hoping in a way that it could have been like maybe Anest did it or something. Like I could just, I was just my mind was just weaving through the possibilities of who of did course, it. Of course, yeah. Maybe it, maybe it was Peridur. Maybe it was Anest. Like maybe it was Reese somehow. Like there was just some possibility of it could be somebody else uh, that that did it, or even John, even for example. But they never went in that direction at all, and uh, it was just kind of just like. Oh, hum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just say, though, Josh, if you go back and read that first opening scene, or that I'd say the opening 10 pages, really, where uh, Cadfell's in the herb that garden. That caught me. It did, yeah, yeah, for sure. It 
If yeah. you go back and you read that opening section again, where Cadfell is in the garden and he's kind of observing the the new and giving us a little introduction to the old monks of the Abbey through his lens, we read these characters. This is where Columbanus is so heavily telegraphed as being ambitious and whatnot. It's also a place where where Brother John is is telegraphed for us because we're told there that he's an unlikely monk and Cadfell doubts his calling and of course. At the end of the story, he goes off with a nest. So it's kind of like if you go back and read that scene, you're told everything that's going to happen in the story, not in like a, hmm, is this foreshadowing way, but more like in a 160 pages from now, all of this becomes true. And it's like, well, it's such a strong impression that that's it, you know? It's true. The first chapter of the book is all you need to know about what happens in that story. Nearly, yeah. From a character point of view. Yeah. Um. There's definitely precedence, you know, for fanatics like Columbanus, but, you know, having enjoyed the characterization of other possible suspects, uh, that reveal just lacked power for me completely. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was going between 2 to 2.5. I like Prior Robert, though, uh, so he, I kind of threw him in as a perpetrator a little bit, so that sure, kind of I, raised yeah, me okay. half a point. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm 2.5 as a, as a whole for, for my pipes on the perpetrators. All right, so we're, we see eye to eye on that. Um what did you think of the environment of the story? I was generous, but I was disappointed. Okay. So this is my thing. Impeccable historical detail. The writer doesn't play with the settings or offer juxtaposition to the darker elements and the pastoral landscapes. I, I, in this story, I don't feel the morbidity when I feel that I should. Pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the title is a tease. Yeah, for all the detail and research, description is vivid, but not evocative to suggest nuance or prod the characters and the surroundings on a thematic or psychological level. Uh, Mm. There's no pathetic fallacy, you know, like, at least not to me. Peters wants to sell the history to us. We see it, we hear it, but we can't touch it, and we definitely can't smell it or feel it. Nope, absolutely, man. You're right. And I felt like this should have been more majestic. There was, as we intimate a few moments ago, there's this real nice rendering of the farms and the forests when the delegation first arrived in Gwytherin's, you know, general area. So much variety of greens and whatnot. And and I did really like that because I could see she was pushing pushing the boat out. Yeah, I'll say. You know, I just found myself imagining sites from other stories and films instead of getting them here on the page. And that's one of those things that, I, I mean, whenever that happens, you know that you're not getting what you want. You're not getting this. This is not Bunker Hill as brought to life by Philip Marlowe. This is like, oh, I remember watching a show once that showed me the valleys. And I remember something. It's a documentary. Yeah, like I just wanted it from this book. But instead, I had to retrieve from my memory and my own experiences of traveling through the area, what this countryside looked like. Like my pre-knowledge helped to paint these places, not Peter's own description. And yeah, I don't know, like that's, that's a shame Just, because she's a capable writer, uh, but she failed, at least in my eyes, to conjure much of this environment apart from three or four spaces and places. It didn't come to life. I didn't feel the religiosity in the culture, uh, 
permeating point. you know yes. the medieval the medieval That's gothic elements that should be in this story to me they were completely dropped uh for this as you said this this pastoral imagery this crofters intrigue <laughs> and yeah is crofters and, and intrigue assumed... really exciting i mean I, i'm not judging yeah, people right. who yeah. enjoy crofters <laughs> intrigue you know like it's good every once in a while sherlock holmes has a grow into the country and does. at least he, he does, does yeah. some juxtaposition about you know what happens in the city what happens in in in, in the in the country rural city, areas yeah. in, in the city is just as worse you just don't hear about it you know, right. like yeah. they're not, he's not yeah. afraid to go beyond the frontier, go into the Ozarks, so to say, uh, and see what's going up, go, going up on in the mountains there, right? There's no, no, there's nothing sinister at all. Like these people aren't, aren't hillbillies or, or, you know, they're not tribal. I mean, I'm not trying to try to other the, the Welsh people or anything like that, but they were just too idyllic for me. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like an episode of Star Trek or something where like <laughs> they, they beam down on the planet. And it's like it's and it's an analog like medieval planet, <laughs> and they're trying to find out who and who what. <laughs> what for, you're right though. I'm sorry. No, I'm, you're right. I'm, you're I'm, absolutely sorry, right. Sorry. It's like you're trying to take our state away. That's against the prime directive. <laughs> oh my goodness! Right. It writes itself. It does. It writes oh itself, man. Because it is just like that. And I hadn't thought of that analogy until you just started it. But man, you're spot on. Like it is a. It's an original series episode of. You know, this planet. <laughs> it's more TNG. I can see Picard as Cadville trying to solve the case to me, but yeah. But Kirk more would work as well. Kirk would go for <laughs> Kirk would go after Shined and Anest and, and stuff like that. He would. Yeah. That's probably the most And Spock uh, would yeah. just and Spock would solve the mystery immediately and be bored. So Uh you're right though. And I really do want to reamplify your point there about the uh, the inability through the prose to feel that religiosity and the larger context of division between the English and the Welsh, like it's there, it's presented. And I, I think what's happening is that Ellis Peters is writing, assuming that her readership are just going to put that together. They're going to know that there's the little, you know, the hatred between the Scots and the Welsh and or the Scotch and the English and, the, you know, the English and the Welsh and whatnot. And we're just going to be able to capture that tribalism in our own minds. But she has a responsibility as a writer to convey that for people who are not au fait with those traditional divisions and with and and at a time of such great religious and political as you say and and military conflict like let's let's get some of that into your story like you know i would rather be bored reading the stuff and then say it was there but it just didn't interest me but here i don't even have the chance to say i was bored by it because it's just absent it is what it is it is what it is. So I went for a three for my environs because I know that she's a capable writer and has it, but um, we don't see a lot of it. The secondary characters, Josh, you hinted that this was an area of strength for you. So why don't you just start here? Um, yeah, I thought the secondary characters were somewhat interesting, although blandly presented. Uh, so we have Shined. We already talked about her. We have mm-hmm. Rissiart. I liked his passion. I thought he yeah, was an interesting he was character okay. up until yeah. his death. Uh, prior Robert, we talked about uh, John. I wanted more of him as well. He was a good foil to Cadfil and to the rest of the monks. Uh, and that seemed kind of interesting as well. For one, po- at one point, I thought maybe she would have been even being the culprit. I don't know why, but for some reason, I mm-hmm. guess I was just going into the construction of a mystery and how how you you know trick the audience. Just you know, just thinking of like you know the particular TV procedurals where oh, it's always the guest star that that's that's the murderer, right, or the victim. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and even Peridur, I found, was probably one of the most interesting characters in the story. I liked his act of contrition and everything like that. I felt sorry for him, you know, and, and, and whatnot. I, I sympathized for his character. Mm-hmm. He seemed like, in a way, a, go- a good person. And what happened to his mother afterwards, I found that kind of compelling as well. So that was the part of the narrative, the human part of the narrative, that really affected me for brief moments in the story. Mm-hmm. So he stood out for me in, in that respect. Those were the most compelling characters. Overall, the characters held up the story more than the environs for me. And that's mm-hmm. a real bad thing, in my opinion. And, and you know, and they helped me place, you know, place me in that, that time period with the diversity of, of the characters. But the fact that the environs failed that and the char- supporting characters were left to do that, that meant the supporting characters had to be thinly sketched in order to create that atmosphere in the first place so yeah, to me point. even the, even the supporting characters gets gets a lower mark than i would have given it so i'm going to stick with with three and a half for the uh for the supporting characters okay cool well i i went for a three myself um i liked some of these for the same reasons you mentioned father hugh what do you think of father hugh I, I I found that he fit into his situate into his into the world very well. Like I believe that he lived there a long time with, with the Welsh people, and that he was familiar with their customs and how things were done in Gwynedd and Gwythrin, Sorry, mm-hmm. and I feel that uh, he he had some moments of nuance for sure. I wanted more of him actually uh, because he seemed even more interesting than Cadfell, who was pretty much cut as our straight hero mm-hmm. all the way from mm-hmm. the very beginning. I mentioned um, one of the books that I read about this period too, uh, The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Uh, that that story features uh, is, a, is largely set in a priory as well, and and uh, and, and and in fact uh, the main character, Prior Philip, is his name. He's a Welshman himself and comes from this background that we talk about, which is depicted a lot more violently and a lot more passionately in that story mm-hmm. than in this one. And sure. I found that even even though he was the prior of this priory and overseeing the building of this cathedral in this town, uh, he was a much more compelling figure than Cadfill yeah. f- for me. Yeah. Uh, even, even though like he was, even though he was kind of like an observer of all the events, they at least kind of made him, gave him presence and an interesting background. And that really tells the difference between. I think that in most cases, when you're writing historical fiction, maybe the mystery novel isn't the way to go at it. Maybe you need something like a, a tome. You need like a James Missioner. You need a Colleen mm-hmm. McCullough. You and need a Ken Echo, Follett. Yeah. And Berto Echo, yeah. I think we did talk about taking on in the name of the rose we did down talk the road. About that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be interesting to compare it to this novel and see how they compare and how they differ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just obviously yeah. in their length, they differ quite drastically. But yeah, I see your point. Like, maybe this is not the best forum in which to do the crime story. Or I think if this is the case, I think this is what we're discovering about doing these, you know, introductory novels to these mystery writers is that we're not going to get all the stuff that we need from a individual no, no. one and done story. Uh, if we're if we're if we're delving into the beginning of a long series that's meant yeah. to be, you know, that's meant to explore the characters as the writer goes on. That's right. So and, and that's fair. Maybe that's a fair that, point. Maybe that in the end we're setting we're setting ourselves up for failure. Perhaps looking for something a little more. Well, I I guess I, I agree with you, but also I disagree because we never said. Uh, one of one of the points of doing it this way was to ask ourselves at the end of every episode, you know, would we consider. Read like when we come when we come to review a first because not all of the books we're going to be looking at this series are firsts in series but the majority of them are, and we said didn't we that 
the success or the failure of the first book would determine the answer to the question, would you like to read more of these? And my answer to this is no, because the one and done can fail. The one and done can fail on different points, but it should not fail on investigation and principles. And this book failed on investigation for me and principles just scratched past. So this is not a story world that I'm interested in revisiting. I don't doubt Ellis Peters' skill or strength as a writer. I know it's there, but I don't think this is a story that fits with my interests as a reader. And of course, Cadfell improves and grows more dynamic and interesting as she spaces out and stretches and evolves the narratives. But for me, this one and done like a morbid taste for bones is the name of the title, but I'm wondering where the morbidity is, and it it didn't it didn't deliver what I thought it was trying to promise. If it was trying to give a Sunday afternoon of intrigue, yeah, maybe, but it doesn't give this man anything terribly interesting. And I know you and I are very different people, very different readers, but it doesn't sound like it gave you much of what you were wanting either. No, I've seen better Star Trek episodes. Well, yeah, this would be a good Star Trek episode. Maybe. Middling. It would be middling. It'd be middling, yeah. So, Josh, your score overall for A Morbid Taste of Bones for Bones is a 15.5, and I was at a 13.5. So, overall, out of 25, a lower story on our scale. And I asked a question, which I've already answered, of you. Would you read another one of these? If I was offered to choose between this novel to continue this detective series with... And then, of course, uh, the Silver Pigs. Mm-hmm. I would probably choose the Silver Pigs over this. But okay. that aside, I don't think I would continue with this series, no. Okay, right. Yeah, I, I guess we should never close the door entirely. I won't say I will never read anything by Ellis Peters again, but Cadfell is going to cool on my shelf, I think, for quite a long time. And, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Cadfell could um, very well share the grave with St. Winifred. Say <laughs> la vie. You can't hear that, but that's, that's me throwing the book in the papers for, for this particular episode behind me in the background. <laughs> right, See buddy. See the Jay Cannell Productions. So listen, uh, everybody, hey, you, you've got feelings about this, Ellis Peters, our opinions, or indeed want to share your thoughts on the book, then get in touch, lightingpipes at gmail.com, or you can find us on the socials, uh, visit Instagram, and uh, let us know what you think under our posts for this story. Did you agree with Josh, with myself? Uh, is it a little more exciting than we give it credit for, perhaps? And um, yeah, we, we'd certainly welcome welcome your comments on that. But Josh, unless you've got anything else to say, I think it's time to sign off. Uh, I thank you for that great context on the Crusades, and I'm glad that you found the enthusiasm uh, to to share with us because it is some fascinating history. Unfortunately, Ellis Peters doesn't give us much more than a daydream or a flashback in the cloister. For some reason, that just sounded really inappropriate. I don't know why. It just did. But, you know, that's about as much excitement as we can get from that story, so... Yeah, that's my that's my coda on it. Anyway, uh, next uh, next episode, uh, let, we're going to the present day. Uh, well, 1985 uh, Edinburgh in particular mm-hmm. with uh, Ian Rankin's famous uh, detective 
the Tartan noir hero, uh, John Rebus. Yeah, we're going to be looking at the first of Ian Rankin's Rebus novels, and uh, that'll be with us, and we'll be doing that episode very soon. But before that, I think Josh and I are going to reselect a couple of Sherlock Holmes stories from our first season, and and we'll reintroduce them with uh, some thoughts of today. I know that we're going to look at the adventure of Black Peter, and also, Josh, the adventure of the Bruce Parting and Plans. So that'll be fun. Absolutely. Yeah. But everybody, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back here on Lighting the Pipes soon. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Thank you.